Welcome to part two of the podcast on Martin Luther King. We concluded the previous section with a question, and that question was, where did the civil uh, civil rights movement go post um, Selma, with the eventual passing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965? Had civil rights and voting rights now been achieved, and therefore, should King have retired from public um, service at this point in terms of his role in being the unofficial leader of African um, Americans, should he have perhaps accepted that he had done all that he possibly could and spent the remainder of his life writing or um, preaching um, back in Atlanta. Well, King did not want to take that path in life and instead he believed that the fight for an improvement in the lives of African Americans had only just begun. Remember, the civil rights movement really just focused on um, black southerners who had been denied um, their constitutional rights. King was slowly coming to realise that the um, big issue, the big area that required addressing for African Americans was the issue of poverty and inequality. And this could be seen not just in the South, but to some extent in even um, greater um uh, kind of um, depth of, of, of kind of problems could be found for African Americans in northern um, cities uh, and also over in the west coast and it's in the west coast that um, we're going to kind of touch on right now the problem of poverty and inequality was illustrated in Watts, a black community in Los Angeles in 1965 and now this is a, a place, an area that King had never necessarily um, saw as being his um, his kind of backyard or his area where he felt comfortable with that that was definitely the south but he felt compelled to come to Watts in 1965 remember he is at the very peak of his powers at this point post Selma the riots of Watts which as I said was a black ghetto in LA led to the deaths of 35 people King was um, horrified, obviously, at this um, sequence of events in this um, part of the country and the increase in violence undertaken by blacks um, obviously contravened his non-violent approach. So King um, decides to go to um, um, Los Angeles. Um, I should mention that the riots were a response to um, black police, uh, sorry, black men being harassed by white police officers. In fact, there was a shooting of a black man by um, the LAPD. So King comes to watch to try and um, calm the situation. King's assessment of the watch riots was that it was a class revolt of underprivileged against privileged, not a race riot. King realised at this point that the civil rights uh, and voting rights, as I mentioned, were only part of the solution and the main issue now that had to be addressed, which was very much um, something that King identified in, in, in Los Angeles, was the issue of poverty. And he um, paraphrases the, um, the words of Booker T. Washington here when he says, there was no point in having the opportunity to sit and eat a hamburger whatever one wanted, if one could not afford to buy it. And there is a view that King starts to move towards a more social democratic or even socialist position from this point on in his life. And we'll see that in a moment when we look at the Chicago campaign 
of 1966. Before we get to that, I just want to talk about um, a little kind of fissure that starts to become a problem within the civil rights movement. Uh, this is the, the kind of splitting up, if you like, of the um, kind of core civil rights organisations that I guess that, that kind of success of unity and collaboration can be seen at the March on Washington in 1963. By 1966, that um, unity has, has, has very much frayed at the, the edges. Um, James Meredith, uh, someone who was already kind of fairly well known to the nation because he was the first African-American student to attend the white University of Mississippi, and there was a real um, challenge to try and get him... Um, admitted to the University of Mississippi, so, so much of a challenge that JFK had to bring in the, the troops to have him registered. Um, there was um, a desire from James Meredith to still play his part in 1966, so he decided to go on a one-man march. Um, this was known as the March Against Fear. It began on the 5th of June 1966, and um, a day later he was shot and wounded. Now the problem, um, most likely by a, a member of the clan, the problem with a one-person march, when that person is wounded, the march can't go on. But in the name of solidarity with Meredith, the three main civil rights organisations, CORE, SNCC, and obviously the SCLC, all decided to um, um, join or carry on or continue the march. And that is what happens um, over the next three weeks, uh, with the march making its way from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, through to Jackson, um, Mississippi. And it concluded with a, a rally uh, where King would speak. And um, with you know fifteen thousand people here, so it was another um, important um, event, if you like, on the civil rights um, kind of path. Again, it's obviously trying to just reinforce the idea that black people should get the right to vote and that black people will not stand up for violence in nineteen sixty six. So we should always bear in mind that just with the passing of legislation in sixty four and sixty five, change does not necessarily come. You know, um, people are going to have to be convinced, and it's pretty difficult to convince white racists in the South to change their views and attitudes. What is really important or significant about this march is what happens at this rally um, in Mississippi. We start to see the divisions within the movement. Now, the leadership of SNCC and CORE had changed hands around this period, and both organisations had become more radical. The leader of CORE, a guy called Floyd McKissick, was um, of the view that maybe non-violence was not bringing enough change quickly enough. And SNCC, ironically, right, the Student Non-Violent Coordinating Committee, were less committed to non-violence now than they ever had been. In fact, they're moving towards a more radical, possibly violent, but a new phrase, a new term, a new ideology, a black power position. And they were led by um, a guy called Stokely Carmichael, who really is the, the guy who initiates this concept of black power that will then be taken up by the Black Panther Party um, in the following year. The traditional civil rights groups, the old civil rights groups, the NAACP and the Urban League, were so opposed to these views of core and especially SNCC by this point that they didn't want anything to do with this uh, Meredith March. And therefore, in the middle stands, SCLC and Martin Luther King, trying his best to keep the civil rights movement um, united. Whatever the civil rights movement is at this point is still not necessarily clear because, as I mentioned, civil rights had been achieved. So all of these organisations are looking in different directions. They've got maybe different priorities. At the culmination of this march in 1966, uh, the divisions were apparent. SCLC protesters were chanting, Freedom Now. But the reason they were doing it was because this was a response to SNCC's chant of Black Power 
black power. So, maybe a lack of significant change, the continuation of poverty, the continuation of violence, the um, feeling that there was too much white interference in the civil rights movement, that is what perhaps leads to this split between the SLC and SNCC. And we should remember that this split was already there in 1965. It's only that John Lewis, the recently deceased John Lewis, that he um, manages to um, play a role in the Selma um, to Montgomery March because he um, really admires King and has, has kind of been there since the start of the movement back in 1960 um, with the student movements and the, um, the sit-ins. Um, but other members of SNCC are not so keen in, in siding with um, King during the Selma. Um, March. So King um, at this point is of the view that you know the government are going to have to give King and the SCLC some victories if he's to keep um, um, black people um, non-violent. He says victories uh, were crucial to um, um, the kind of continued moderate, if you like, success of the movement. Um, the only problem is that victories after Selma um, didn't really come for King. You could say that um, post-Selma we enter a new phase of African-American um, politics. Now, as I mentioned before, King um, does start to take on slightly more um, economic views and pers perspectives. You might call these socialist. And we see an example of this in King's decision to go to Chicago. Again, he's out of his comfort zone. He's going north. It's the first time that he's ever went north to kind of start a campaign. He thinks... And his movement think that they can maybe do what they have done in Birmingham or Selma in a northern city and bring about some radical change. The problem is when you go to somewhere like Chicago where there has not been any legal segregation, where there's not been um, a legal attempt to deny black people the right to vote, then you don't have the same... Um, sense of injustice um, amongst um, even some of the kind of white community. There is a view that black people and white people are different. They have different races, different cultures. Black people should live in their areas and white people should live in their areas. And even then, the white areas were also kind of distinguished by ethnic background from Italian to Polish um, and so on, so and Irish. So you, you've got kind of divisions, racial or ethnic divisions already in the North, which complicates matters. King goes to Chicago with the belief that he can bring about significant change to the economic position of, of black Americans. And he decides he's going to live on a house and estate in um, Chicago and he's going to kind of run affairs from there and his main demands are going to be uh, placed at the Chicago government and to the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Bailey, demanding um, housing improvements, jobs and public school integration. King really wants to tackle and challenge um, history, um, the history of um, Chicago, which was one based on um, blacks moving there as part of the Great Migration, doing fairly well for themselves initially, but ultimately ending up at the bottom of the pile and suffering from inequality and poverty. King does see uh, receive a bit of a backlash from, from some of his kind of former white allies who think that his activities were a bit premature and inflammatory. Coming to the North um, was not necessarily welcomed. It was fine when the civil rights movement was about white racists in the South, but white racists in the North did not like being um, questioned or, or challenged. Um, on July 10th, 1966, King addressed a crowd of 50,000 um, at Chicago's Soldier Field, a large um, stadium um, in the city, as part of his campaign to end slum housing and ideally 
um, to end segregated housing, to not have black people living in one area, the, the city and whites and, and other areas. Um, after this um, um, meeting or demonstration, um, he then met the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly. And Daly wanted a deal, right? He just wanted rid of King. And they, they came up with what was known as the Summit Agreement. Um, now, this summit agreement, which I'll talk about very briefly, um, was part of a, a wider movement from, from the SCLC to try and um, bring about change. And what we see is lots of white neighbourhoods um, being um, the scene of black demonstrations and marches. And what King recognised was, as he was marching through um, Chicago neighbourhoods, was that the racism prevalent. So the white people who come out of their houses and homes to um, protest against the black demonstrators, the racism was so um, so vile, so much worse, King believed, actually, than what he'd seen in, in Alabama and Mississippi, that he was, he was truly shocked. And King was, um, he was hit with a, a flying brick um, during one of the marches. Things got um, quite, quite ugly. It was very clear that Chicago was not, the white residents in Chicago were not ready to allow white people, uh, to allow black people to live in the same areas as them. The history of, of housing in Chicago, and this was apparent across the United States, was when black people started to move into areas, so the kind of more often not maybe the more established, affluent, middle class black people, once they moved into areas, white people started to move out. Eventually, we have this. Um, phrase that is used called white flight which means that black people come to an area slowly but surely white people decide that they don't want to live in that area and they depart um to the suburbs and the, the newly established suburbs and then you have white people living in suburbia black people in inner city areas and we still have this type of housing in the united states to this day you may have heard of the term projects the projects are still uh, largely frequented by black people latino people by ethnic and uh, minorities whereas whites um tend to live in more um affluent housing in other parts of a city usually in the suburbs, although you obviously have in certain downtown places like Manhattan and some wealthy cities, um, um, a kind of large white population where real estate is really expensive right in the heart of the city. So things don't turn out for King the way he would like. He does get this deal with Mayor Richard Daly known as a summit agreement. There were a number of concessions to the black community, but um, no real attempt to integrate housing. Most black people remain living in ghettos or the projects. The SCLC do obtain um, a $4 million federal grant to improve housing. The Chicago movement uh, did leave a legacy, perhaps, right? There was um, Operation Breadbasket established by Jesse Jackson, um, who helped... Um, and through this this operation, the black communities, um, you know, feed themselves and look after themselves. Eventually, in 1983, Chicago would have a black mayor. Um, others believed that the concessions were pretty limited, and that actually the Chicago campaign was about a disaster, bit of a disaster for King. Um, nothing substantial was gained. Slum housing remained, as I said. Segregation remained. Um, local black politicians didn't really get behind King and remained loyal to their mayor. This led to, I guess, accusations thrown at the SCLC that top-down participation did not work. So this is the idea of King going in, dramatising an issue, making a big deal, trying to bring about change in a short space of time. That didn't work. What was required was grassroots work, um, long-term um, development, chipping away at the problem slowly but surely. That was a kind of snick um, approach. So... The Chicago plan, you can determine for yourself if you think it was a success. Um, 
or, or not. On the SME presentation, there are a few slides um, that are dedicated to primary sources about the Chicago um, plan, and you will see um, some of the stuff that um, King and SEL see what we're kind of concerned about and why we believe that Chicago had to be um, tackled because it had such a dreadful housing for, for African Americans. So King really is challenging um, poverty um, at this point. And um, you see this uh, roughly from sources um, 19 to 21. Um, okay, the next thing that I want to focus on is um, this, just this idea that King had moved further to the left. Um, after Chicago, King stated it was time for major changes in the United States. And he says, I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, or what Martin Luther King called a revolution of values. King had attended the, the Highlander Folk School in, in Tennessee when he was a younger man. And the Highlander Folk School had a bit of a reputation of being a... a a kind of place where radicals came to learn how to become um, good politicians. And there was a communist influence, undoubtedly, at um, Highlander. And um, King also had communist advisors, Jack O'Dell and Stanley Levinson. And, okay, these guys said they were ex-communists, but just having that label of communist to, um, to have that, and be a, an advisor to King was always a problem for, for King. I don't think King ever was a communism, um, but he did find Marxism useful. He says that he found that um, Marxism um, exposed the weaknesses of traditional capitalism. King did believe in some form of nationalisation. He believed in a minimum wage. Like Dubois and Randolph before him, King realised that any substantive improvement for blacks would require a redistribution of national wealth, and the only way that could be achieved would be through uh, government um, intervention. Uh, King, in late 1966, was therefore preparing for political and economic activity of a scale and nature sufficient enough to outrage and alienate maybe all of the groups that had previously supported him, including the president, President Johnson. Uh, Johnson. Um, and King maybe sums up his views when he says, the eradication of slum housing is complex far beyond integrating buses and lunch counters. Um, that is true, and it's the reason why America to this day still has the problems in its housing communities for minorities, especially black people, in 2020 as it had in 1966, um, which is you know, pretty depressing. Um, King's radical views are shown again, especially his view that money could be better spent when it comes to um, his criticism of the Vietnam War. As early as um, 65, 1965, King started to express doubts about American involvement in Vietnam. On um, April 4th, 1967, King spoke out against the American involvement, insisting that the US was in Vietnam to occupy it as an American colony. This is his famous April 4th, 1967, Beyond Vietnam speech. And when he makes this speech, he um, actually gains some of the older civil rights groups um, back into kind of... Um, his kind of or back on his his side. So obviously the Urban League and the NACP have kind of drifted away from King. They see him now as being too radical. But SNCC, led by Stokely Carmichael, um, 
although Carmichael by 67 has kind of moved on and has become a kind of Black Panther Party um, member for a short time. So uh, Carmichael, uh, when he hears that King is going to make a speech out about the Vietnam War, um, he says to Martin Luther King, you know, well, I'll, I'll come and listen to you. I'll come to your church and listen to your um, speech. And he is delighted. In fact, you can watch a video clip. Uh, this is a kind of speech before King makes his big speech about Vietnam. He makes a kind of... Um, kind of trial version of it in his own church and Stokely Carmichael's the first person standing up at the very front of the, the, the congregation giving King a standing ovation for his anti-Vietnam War um, speech. Um, King loses friends though, he loses his main ally in the White House obviously, President Johnson, because he is now interfering in foreign policy and there was a view that King should stick to civil rights, should stick to you know the, the issues that affected black people. King does himself maybe no favours when he says that the United States was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today in regards to their involvement in Vietnam. He also stated our loyalties must transcend our race, our tribe, our class, our nation. This means we must develop a world perspective. I know Muhammad Ali gets a lot of, um, or has had a lot of attention for his views on the Vietnam War and he refused to obviously go and fight in this war. Um, but King is just is just as vitriolic about Vietnam um, as anybody else. In fact, King supported a Vietnam summer, a massive, peaceful, solid three-month saturation of anti-war protest in Washington, if needs be. Um, so, King makes enemies, but where, I guess, you could say that King um, sticks and, and remains true to himself is that he is speaking his voice. He could have made a political decision here to try and stay on side with Johnson and with you know, kind of white allies. But with Chicago and now the Vietnam views, he is being pushed further and further to the, the side. But he's not radical enough to really be adopted into the kind of Black Panther movement that is now taking hold and he's now alienated himself from liberal and um, kind of slash conservative uh, civil rights groups. Um, I'm not really sure where King is at at this point, but he believes he is speaking the truth and I think he should get a lot of credit um, for that by this point. 1968 is the year when King thinks that poverty really has to be the the main issue that America deals with. And it's, it's ironic because President Lyndon Johnson had came to office um, after the Kennedy assassination and then in 1964 when he wins the election with the intention of focusing not so much on civil rights but um, focusing on um, a new society, a new America that would be free from poverty. But when King is campaigning for this very similar um, approach that, that Johnson had um, initiated, um, King doesn't get support from Johnson because Johnson is now embroiled in the Vietnam War. In the 1968 Poor People's Campaign that King and the SLC were um, embarking upon, King stated that poor people's lives are disrupted and dislocated every day. He says we want to put a stop to this poverty, racism and discrimination cause families um, to be kept apart, men to be desperate, women to live in fear and children to starve. He says all these issues have to um, be brought to an end. And here was King not just looking at black people, but he was looking at Native Americans, he was looking at Hispanics, Latinos, poor white people, all of them were part of what would eventually maybe be referred to as a, a kind of rainbow coalition that hopefully could come together to try and end poverty um, in the United States. King is, again, not himself someone who would label himself as a socialist, but his actions would suggest by this point that that is the route that he is he's taking uh, in life. The Poor People's Campaign of 1968 
um, was um, really an, an attempt again to, to target the poorest cities and rural areas in the US to drum up support and volunteers, take roughly 3,000 volunteers from these poor parts of the country, the unemployed, the dispossessed, the racially affected, and send them to Washington DC. There they would set up camps and tents and put pressure on the Johnson administration to bring about change. All of this while there's um, demonstrations against Vietnam, it would have led to chaos, um, arguably, in, in Washington, which was what King wanted, non-violent chaos. There were demands for an economic bill of rights, originally proposed by A. Philip Randolph. King is moving closer and closer to Randolph's position as he gets towards the end of his life. What King wanted was employment to the able-bodied, viable incomes to all unemployed people, a federal housing act to obviously bring an end to slum housing and enforcement of integrated education. This is 1968. The Brown case was 1954. Here we are all of these years um, later and... Um, you know, a Supreme Court ruling has not brought about what it should have done, not just in the South, but also in the North. If Johnson did not accept these demands, then King believed that it would be his duty to bring more and more poor demonstrators to the capital. So it's a radical idea. Um, unemployed people, mainly from minority backgrounds, um, playing their part in trying to bring about change. Now, a white backlash was sweeping the nation at this point, but King was no longer interested in, in his kind of pragmatic approach of wooing, pre wooing presidents. Um, only the truth mattered. Um, unfortunately, white America did not want to hear the truth, especially um, the power structure within white America. This was a step too far um, for, for King because he's trying to obviously um, readdress or address or change or, or, or transform or revolutionise the whole nature of the American political and economic system. And um, if you think about just how much of a backlash there's been about social um, health um, in the United States, the idea of socialised health or what we would call the NHS, that in itself is something which Americans, some Americans really struggle to accept. You dare to um, suggest that people pay for their health care via a type of national insurance, then you get labelled a, a communist. So King, um, King is trying to obviously limit the appeal of black power and at the same time he's trying to attract as many different people to his poor people's campaign. It's a it's a battle that he's struggling to win, but he doesn't really lose faith. He does have his moments, but he keeps going and he keeps going to the point where he goes uh, in 1968, um, really the kind of um, a year exactly after his um, Vietnam War speech, he goes to um, Memphis. He's asked to go to Memphis um, by an old friend of his um, an old friend, actually, who was um, a crucial figure in the um, teaching of non-violent um, methods. So he goes to um, Memphis to support striking sanitation workers who um, are obviously wanting better conditions, better pay. And King goes in, he wants to try and make sure that things stay non-violent. Unfortunately, violence does break out at some of these marches um, between the protesters and the police. And um, King says, OK, look, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. When I come back, I'm going to try and ensure that this protest can, can carry on. And um, he stays in a place in Memphis, Tennessee, called the Lorraine Motel. And um, whilst King is there, um, you, know, you might be thinking that his political life has... Um, usefulness is starting to kind of deteriorate. But 
he does, on the night before he is murdered, make a speech. And it's known as the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. I'm going to actually finish this little um, podcast by, by playing it to you. It's a cold, wet, wild night in, um, in, in, in Memphis. And King was not actually going to go and make a speech to the, the crowd that had assembled to um, hear the SALC talk about, you know, their, their, their kind of campaign and what they, were trying to, what they were trying to achieve within Memphis and the Poor People's Campaign that was um, being planned. But King goes and speaks because the crowd want him. And he goes and he makes possibly the greatest, or second greatest speech um, of his life. He, um, he'd already been threatened. His life had been threatened on countless occasions. He knew that the FBI were watching him. He um, knew that he was um, a marked man. Um, he even um, um, kind of um, predicts his death, if you like, within this speech. But what you get is a real sense of um, the lack of fear within King. It's a, it's a remarkable speech, actually. Um, he challenges a whole range of things, even criticises Coca-Cola uh, in this speech. And um, the next day, um, he's in good spirits, but as he goes out onto the balcony of the Lorraine um, Lorraine Hotel or Motel, and you can see this on um, the Sway presentation, he is, um, he's gunned down and um, and, and dies um, shortly after, um, killed by obviously a white um, lunatic racist. So I'm going to leave you now with this I've been to the mountaintop um, speech. If you think the quality is not that good on here, then obviously you can, um, you can listen to it. Um, on YouTube somewhere. But here it is. Martin Luther King, I've been to the mountaintop. The last significant words that he makes before his death. Thank you. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We gotta see it through. When we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day a man came to Jesus and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side, 
they didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the bow and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, or down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal route rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, 
What will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. And let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up the only question I heard from her was, Are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said, yes. The next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy 
that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962 when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Uh, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.